Welcome. This is Philippe Albuquerque. I'm the editor of the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery, and I'm delighted today to welcome Dr. Michael Veldeman from the Department of Neurosurgery at RWTH Aachen University in Aachen, Germany, who will discuss today his manuscript, Intra-Arterial Nimodipine for the Treatment of Refractory Delayed Cerebral Ischemia After Aneurysmal Subarachnoid Hemorrhage. This manuscript is currently on the JNIS website and will appear in an upcoming print issue of the JNIS. This editor-in-chief podcast is supported by Rapid Medical. When treating stroke, procedural time and patient safety are critical. Utilizing advanced technology backed by clinical data, Rapid Medical expands what's possible in neurovascular treatment by offering interventional devices that are fully visible and adjustable in the brain. The result, the unique ability to tailor the procedure to every patient. Tools like Tiger Retriever 13, the smallest clot retriever in the world, bring added control to treating distal or delicate vessels. Visit www.rapid-medical.com for more information. Michael, welcome and thank you again for this interesting manuscript. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Albuquerque, um, for having me. It's an honor. Yeah, at the outset, Michael, I'd like to describe your methods and results, if you could briefly summarize those. Well, so we began applying intraarterial spasmolysis um, for patients with refractory cerebral vasospasms, or better said, delayed cerebral ischemia in um, 2011. And with now over about 10 years of experience, the time point came to analyze and assess this cohort of treated patients. So what we initially wanted to do was a before and after analysis using a historical control group treated, but prior to the introduction of spasmolysis in our institutional treatment algorithm. But unfortunately, this proved not to be very useful, mainly because there was such a large heterogeneity in defining DCI and how patients were treated prior to 2011. So in the current paper, we um, descriptively present our experience with the treatment of 376 SAH patients presented to us between 2011 and 2020. A total of 198 were diagnosed with uh, clinical or radiological DCI and were treated with induced hypertension. If these patients were not responding either clinically or in perfusion CT imaging, Conventional angiography was done and spasmolysis was considered. And in total, we've been treating 96 SAH patients, so a little over 10 each year over the past 10 years. We assessed clinical outcome after one year as measured by the Glasgow Outcome Scale. And in addition, the presence of DCI-related infarction was noted upon last CT imaging before discharge. What we saw is that of um, spasmolysis-treated patients, 47.6%, so almost half, reached a favorable outcome after one year, uh, as measured by the Glasgow Outcome Scale, and were functionally independent. Unfortunately, due to the lack of a comparable control group, our results remain largely descriptive, but nonetheless, we believe that for this subgroup of severely affected SEH patients, these outcomes proved to be quite good. 
Michael, could you discuss why you specifically chose nimodipine as an intraarterial agent? There are a number of other medications that potentially could be used. What are some of the uh, benefits and what are some of the pitfalls of using this particular medication? Indeed, there are many spasmolytic agents which are being used, um, naming papaverine, verapamil, milrinone as the most common ones. Um, without going into much details on advantages and side effects of each of these drugs, nimodipine appeared to us as a logical option. It has an effect range with which goes beyond resolving angiographic vasospasm. And we all apply it orally as it improves outcome without any visual effect on angiographic vasospasm. The drug is believed to exert some neuroprotective effect, which might be related to microvascular vasodilation, but this concept has only been assessed in animal SAH models. When uh, overviewing the literature on spasmolysis, which we're currently doing in preparation of a systemic review, we notice most centers, at least in Europe, use nimodipine as their agent of choice. Ideally, you would need a more selective cerebral vasodilator with limited to no systolic blood pressure reduction, but almost all of the agents, all of the agents which are available, cause some systemic hypotension. Sure. Um, can you discuss a bit the role of CTP in the diagnosis of DCI and perhaps elucidate a, a bit on how your treatment algorithm has now changed in light of your uh, research? Well, um, perfusion CT for us has become really the workhorse for DCI diagnostics in unconscious patients. As half of SH patients present with the Hunter has grade three or higher and some disturbance of consciousness. The clinical DCI definition, though practical, is just not usable in patients which are not clinically examinable. So since 2014, we've been applying brain tissue oxygen monitoring. We've been using cerebral microdialysis in hydrate patients, which offers continuous monitoring, but still measurements are local and impending ischemia distant from the probe might be missed. So we don't have a standardized perfusion CT algorithm, by which I mean we don't scan patients on regular time points. Let's say day five, seven, ten, as some institutions do. But once DCI is diagnosed, and especially once spasmolysis is begun, it's our main feedback tool to tailor treatment, meaning um, adjusting nemodipine dosage once intraarterial spasmolysis is begun. Have you changed your paradigm in terms of the use of induced hypertension? I know these patients in this particular trial uh, or research study are patients that failed induced hypertension. Do you think now that there should potentially be a change in that management and that perhaps patients should be treated earlier now that you have these positive results? Yeah, that's a very good question, um, especially knowing that evidence for induced hypertension is still based on observational results. Um, there has been the randomized Himalaya trial, which was not able to prove any clear-cut effect of induced hypertension. We, we still apply it. We mainly watch um, out for um, too high of vasopressor dos dosage um, and systemic complications. We we still use it as a first-line treatment um, and do not um, use spasmolysis before patients have 
at least received um, induced hypertension until a perfusion CT shows that they're not responding anymore. So from that point of view, our treatment algorithm has not changed uh, based on, on these positive results now. So in, in what subset of DCI patients uh, in which you've obtained the CT perfusion, do you actually not proceed further with intraarterial nemotopene? Is there a cutoff? Is there, um, uh, you know, a, a worst case scenario in which you wouldn't proceed with further treatment? Well, one of the contraindications we've been applying is if there's already a DCR-related infarction demarcated because of the use of uh, anti-aggregative uh, medication, uh, the risk of hemorrhagic transformation of the already developed infarction, uh, we don't spasmalize these patients. Is there a volume of infarction that you're specifically looking at? No, there's no clear-cut um, volume uh, which which we use as a threshold, but usually at least uh, partial territorial infarctions. Michael, can you describe the, the the technical aspects of the procedure in terms of the transarterial nemotopene infusion? We always use femoral access. It's done by our team of dedicated neuroradiologists. Patients have to be obviously transferred to the angio suite, which is next to our perfusion CT scanner, which um, makes it quite easy to transfer patients. Then microcatheters are usually advanced up into to the pre-pitrous segment of the carotid artery. And we've been applying single session spasmolysis initially, but noticed that patients require too often repeated treatment. Um, so we've switched more to continuous spasmolysis and then the sheet is fixated and patients are transferred with microcatheters in situ back to the intensive care unit where they're um, constantly perfused with nimodipine accompanied by uh, heparin solution. And how quickly are you bringing those patients back to the angio suite when you start the continuous infusion? Usually they get a CT perfusion scan 24 hours later. And depending on the results, we adapt the dosage of nimodipine. Um, they usually only get back into the angio suite if there's a persistent perfusion deficit once nimodipine is running at maximum rate, which is usually six milliliters an hour um, per site. If this um, is not resolving the perfusion deficits, patients would go back into the angio suite um, either to see whether um, there's still angiographic vasospasm and probable uh, angioplasty is possible. Now, have you seen appreciable improvement in proximal vasospasm? You mentioned that you're uh, in the lower carotid artery. Often vasospasm can affect, as you know, the large vessels at the base of the skull and certainly can affect the distal vasculature. How effective has the medication been in uh, treating the more proximal arterial spasm? Well, actually quite good. The angiographical results are usually quite impressive and quite fast. Um, sometimes there are patients who have a delayed response, but um, also proximal vessel vasospasm actually 
resolves in almost all the cases. Um, there have been there have been some patients who've been on the NG table a couple of hours until they've had a response, um, and otherwise, in selective patients, we've been applying balloon angioplasty for proximal angiographic vasospasm. We'd be remiss not to discuss potential complications. You had mentioned briefly some of the systemic complications with induced hypertension. Specifically, can you discuss the um, complications that you encountered uh, with the use of intraarterial nimodipine? Uh, your manuscript delineates a 9.4% rate of complications. Can you describe these and whether you believe these can be mitigated in the future with you know, potential changes in your technique? Yes, it's it's still an invasive procedure. So one in 10 patients uh, having a complication is definitely not trivial. We've seen one cerebral vessel dissection of the ICA, two um, relevant trombi who formed adjacent to the catheter in the ICA, and uh, two arterial vessel dissections of the femoral artery and three smaller ischemic strokes in a total of 96 patients. So um, you cannot neglect these these complications, but I guess there are two aspects to these. We're lucky enough to have a dedicated team of neurointerventionalists doing an outstanding job, but even if um, catheter placement is executed perfectly, the risk of a bellock stroke or dissection, especially in patients with tortuous anatomy and atherosclerotic vessels, will, will probably never be zero. The other aspect is to use the use materials and drugs, um, the development of better steerable anticoagulant treatment as well as antithrombotic catheters. Could aid in the reduction of treatment risk? Um, and then there, as you mentioned, the systemic complications, um, which is difficult to pinpoint whether there's a direct causal relation with spasmolysis, because most of these complications are also related to um, the use of vasopressors. Um, and these systemic complications, especially if there's a superimposed uh, septic shock, it's, it's difficult to, to clear-cut say uh, that there's any causal relation with spasmolysis. Well, it must be somewhat challenging to delineate whether or not a stroke after intraarterial nimodipine therapy is related to the procedure or just the sequela of DCI. Um, how did you make that determination in, in this study? That's that's true. That's an, that's absolutely difficult to uh, to distinguish. It's it's usually the the timely relation which tells us whether it would be a complication of the of the treatment itself, as well as um, the location of the infarction. If there's a clear cut perfusion deficit in one of the major vascular territories, which then later evolves into a DCI-related infarction despite the use of spasmolysis. We categorize it as ineffective spasmolysis and it's a DCI-related infarction, whereas um, multiple smaller thromboembolic strokes um, on the brain surface would be categorized as um, a complication of catheterization. So it's location, timing, and uh, the knowledge of previous anatomical distribution of perfusion deficits, which let us distinguish both. 
Well, obviously, this is a this continues to be a very vexing problem for for all of us that treat subarachnoid hemorrhage. Um, we've been fighting against uh, vasospasm for years. I would I would argue that you know perhaps the rate of symptomatic vasospasm has declined somewhat in the last decade, given the advent of uh, endovascular techniques. Um, you do discuss in your manuscript that a randomized trial is being planned. Can you uh, mention that uh, in a, a bit more detail and, and tell us what this manuscript uh, bodes for the future in terms of uh, the management of these challenging patients? That's correct. We're, we're in the designing stage of a randomized control trial. Um, I can disclose that it's going gonna, it's gonna to be called a FINA trial. It's going to be a two-group randomized superiority trial assessing intraarterial spasmolysis using nimodipine versus continued intraarterial spasmolysis. We're anticipating the beginning of recruitment in 2025. Unfortunately, due to the lack of an FDA approval of niamodipine as a solute in the States, it will be a European project. But if people who are listening are interested to take part in this pro project, feel free to contact me and we'll be in touch. Okay. Well, Michael, thank you very much for your participation in this podcast today. Again, your manuscript is entitled Intraarterial Nimodipine for the Treatment of Refractory Delayed Cerebral Ischemia After Aneurysmal Subarachnoid Hemorrhage. The manuscript is currently on the JNIS website and will appear in an upcoming print issue. Michael, thank you very much for your participation. Thank you very much. The pleasure was all mine. Mm -hmm.